So let's turn to the armory that we just sang about. We don't think about the Bible, uh, I would think, as an armory very often from which we gather uh, weapons uh, to carry on the spiritual warfare uh, that the Lord has called us to. And yet that's a wonderful hymn to remind us there's flowers, but there's also weapons to be found here because we are in a battle. And so we are reading uh, this evening in Psalm 17. That's where we'll uh, read together uh, for our time this night. So this is the uh, word of the Lord, Psalm 17, uh, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come, let your eyes behold the right. You've tried my heart, you visited me by night. You've tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, from my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They're satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, uh, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, your word is like a garden, uh, that there are flowers blooming here for us to pick, that your word is uh, like an armory. For Lord, we are in a spiritual battle, and it's your word that equips us with weapons uh, for the fight. And so, Lord, we pray that in our own lives tonight, uh, by your Holy Spirit, you would minister to us where we are, uh, that uh, in this passage of Scripture, you would Give to each one what we stand in need of even this night uh, as we go forth uh, to serve you in the week to come. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the uh, best descriptions of prayer uh, that I have come across is by John Bunyan, who described prayer in this way. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ. In the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit, for such things as God has promised, or according to his word, for the good of the church, with submission and faith uh, to uh, the will of God. Said Ralph Benning, prayer will make a man to cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. Said another, the religion of most men lies in the marketplace and in the view of others. Their hearts, their closets are not privy to any secret transactions between God and their souls. 
And in the praise of men, they have their reward. But the thriving trade of Christianity is the secret trade. Christians, be most in those duties which men least observe and chiefly excellent in the invisible part of your visible work. I like that one. The thriving trade of Christianity is the secret trade. Um, see what they're saying there? That they don't do things out in the marketplace openly. Uh, the Christian is always involved in this, uh, uh, this secret trade, that is secret business of, of communication with God. The invisible part of our visible work. Uh, there are no Academy Awards, of course, or Tonys or Emmys or what have you for the greatest prayer. Uh, it, is a, it is a secret work. It is, as Bunyan said, a pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ and the strength of the Holy Spirit. In his confessions, Augustine reflects on how it was that the Lord brought him out of his sin to embrace Christ. He wrote this uh, to the Lord. And now, Lord, you did stretch forth your hand from above and did draw up my soul out of that profound darkness because my mother, your faithful one, wept to you on my behalf more than mothers are accustomed to weep for the bodily deaths of their children. For by the light of the faith and spirit which she, his mother, received from you, she saw that I was dead. And you did hear her, O Lord. You did hear her and despise not her tears. When pouring down, they watered the earth under her eyes in every place where she prayed. You did truly hear her. Uh, that's true of me, too, I think. Uh, my mother praying for me, that invisible, uh, invisible work. As we consider the Psalms, uh, we have the great privilege of really entering the school of prayer as we hear the prayers of David. Psalm 17 is actually the, uh, the first psalm that is explicitly uh, called a prayer of David. Uh, prayers read, of course, and then taken up uh, by the greater David, by the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, he's the one, of course, whom the psalms uh, speak of. And he's the one, of course, who prays these prayers as the faithful servant of God. And so tonight we're going to uh, look in on this prayer of David under three, three headings tonight. Feet on the path, wings overhead, and a face uh, that delights. A prayer of David. First of all, feet on the path. Probably the first thing that might strike you about Psalm 17 is the, uh, shall we say, the, uh, the chutzpah of David. Uh, it may strike us as audacious, uh, presumptuous, taking some nerve and gall, perhaps, to pray uh, what he prays. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You've tried my heart. You've visited me by night. You've tested me. You'll find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress with regard to the works of man by the words of your lips. I've avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not uh, slipped. I think, oh, <laughs> uh, he's pretty bold in prayer. Uh, or consider the uh, beginning to another prayer of David, uh, Psalm 86, that goes, uh, that goes like, like this. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. 
Save your servant who trusts in you. Uh, you are, you are my God. Now we've talked about this before. This is not David uh, seeing himself uh, as sinless or somehow righteous uh, in himself. How do we know that? Well, because first of all, the same Psalm 86 from which we just read a few verses later, this same David says, "For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving." Abounding in steadfast love to all upon all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. For David is not someone who thinks he is somehow uh, sinless uh, before the Lord. Uh, here in Psalm 17, David is encircled by enemies. Uh, he's crying out to God for help and protection. He's pleading with the Lord, but he is uh, opening himself up uh, to God's uh, searching. I, in this matter, Lord, as I come before you, I come uh, with a clear conscience. Derek Kidner, Bible commentator, writes this. If these claims of David sound extravagant to you, God himself could use such language uh, of Job. God himself said this of Job, remember? And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. That's Job. It's not sinless, but he's described as a, as a righteous man, says Kidner, without for a moment implying his sinlessness. David is not complacent here, but concerned for integrity, man's truth and God's. He searches his heart and finds assurance that his piety uh, is no pretense. He's not pretending. He therefore appeals to God to adjudicate accordingly, to judge accordingly, for his name needs to be cleared. God as judge can surely do no less, and David has nothing to hide. This is how he prays. No pretense and nothing to hide. Now, of course, if we are pretending and if we are hiding something, it's more than likely we don't pray at all. But as David, um, as he considers his lips, his heart, his mouth, his works, his ways, and his feet, his conscience is clear before God. Verse 5. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. His feet and steps hold fast to the paths of the Lord. Paths there is the word tracks. Like think of wagon tracks in the mud. Uh, Well-established Paths. They have not moved and they have not been shaken. Uh, you remember Psalm 16 where David said this, I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And so here he's just emphasizing again his his walk with God, his walk in the ways of God, his following the paths of God. You think of Jeremiah 6 when Jeremiah speaks of uh, how uh, God's people should ask for the uh, the old paths that they should walk in them. This is what David says he's doing, walking in the paths of the Lord. Elsewhere, of course, uh, David confesses in Psalm 66 uh, that when there is open and unconfessed sin, uh, that is a great barrier uh, to communion with God. You might remember David's words here in Psalm 66. He says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, uh, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice uh, of my prayer. It was Jesus, of course, who said, you remember, 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do uh, what I what I tell you? So what David is saying here, he's not saying he's sinless, but as he is uh, praying, he is saying that his feet are in the paths of the Lord, that he is uh, seeking to be uh, a, a faithful, uh, loyal, uh, joyful, obedient, uh, holding fast to the Lord's path, uh, kind of follower of the Lord. Keeping our feet in the Lord's path, for David anyway, and for us too, gives strength and courage and confidence and assurance as we pray. David here is talking about, his, his, he has examined his own heart. He has examined his own uh, conscience, his own walk with the Lord, and asked himself, no doubt, am I walking in his ways? Am I following in obedience to his commandments? Am I honoring uh, my parents? Uh, am I honoring the Lord's day? Am I honoring those uh, in authority? Am I honoring his name? And, and he comes here in prayer uh, before the Lord uh, with a clear conscience that he is walking with him. There's a beautiful picture in verse 3. I don't know if you caught it. He writes this. You've tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You've tested me. Uh, you will find nothing. Often the psalmist will describe what he does in the night. You know, in different passages, talk about hey, you will meditate on his word. In the night, I meditate upon your word. But here, uh, here, uh, here he's describing uh, the Lord visiting him at night. Often the word visiting has a, a connotation of judgment. God coming to inspect, to judge. And uh, kind of like a parent looking in on a, uh, on a child in the middle of the night. Are they sleeping? You know, you peer open the door. As parents, we check in. Yep, they're there. They're sleeping. The Lord visits in the night. But in this case, the Lord opens the door uh, and he looks into David's heart. What does he find? He finds true faith. That's what he finds. He finds true faith there in David. Not sinless, but one whose feet are uh, firmly walking in the paths of the Lord. And so David comes. This is a beautiful picture of coming to the Lord in prayer uh, with a clear conscience, not hiding anything, not pretending anything, uh, but with our feet walking in his path. So feet on the path. Wings overhead. Wings overhead. Writes David in verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. If you're familiar with the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, you know there are key moments Throughout those books, when great eagles uh, come to the rescue. Uh, it's always a beautiful, beautiful scene. In The Hobbit, the eagles rescue Thorin and his company from a band of goblins and wargs. The eagles fight in the climactic battle uh, of the five armies. In The Lord of the Rings, uh, they rescue Gandalf the wizard from the tower where he's been imprisoned. They arrive at the Black Gate to fight off the Nazgul just in time. And they come at the end to rescue uh, Frodo and Sam from Mount Doom, carrying them to safety. And there's something in, those, there's in, in the movie anyway, and in the book. Uh, you got to imagine in the book. But in the movie, uh, yeah. Uh, there's something majestic and awe-inspiring about the great outstretched wings of an eagle in flight. And so in the United States of America, the bald eagle was adopted as the symbol of the United States. In 1782, the great seal uh, of the country is an eagle with outstretched wings. 
Jesus uses the imagery of wings, of course, to speak of himself in Matthew 23, 37, of himself. Uh, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Right? That's Jesus speaking of himself. Boaz in Ruth 2, when he's speaking to Ruth, commending Ruth about she's come back with Naomi. He says, you have, you have sought shelter under the wings of the Almighty. This is what Boaz says to Ruth. And for the psalmist, safety, peace, rescue, security was pictured in this way. So, feet on the path, wings overhead, ah, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. He knows those wings are there, but he still prays. He calls upon the Lord, confident the Lord will answer, uh, will provide, will show his love. David prays not to inform the Lord of something the Lord didn't know already, but David prays uh, laying his need uh, out before the Lord, reminding himself of the precious promises of God. Right? Verse 6. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries, at your right hand. Actually, it could be translated not at your right hand, but in your right hand. Uh, seeking refuge uh, now, why would it be described that way? Well, if you turn over uh, later in the Psalms, turn over to Psalm 36. If you have your Bible open there, turn to Psalm 36, where we read these words. Psalm 36, verse 7, again, as David is reflecting on the precious, steadfast love. That's the hesed, that's the covenant faithfulness, the, the mercy uh, of our covenant God to his people. Psalm 36, 7 says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And then it says this. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. And in your light do we see light. You give them drink from the river of your delights. And with you is the fountain ever flowing fresh. Water, ever-flowing fountain of life, feasting on his abundance. That's what's found under the shadow uh, of the wings of the Lord. Now, you may know that this language is not the first time we find this kind of language in the Bible. This actually goes back to, uh, back to uh, Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. As Moses is uh, singing the song of Moses... In the ears, the Bible says, of all the assembly of Israel. And this is what he wants to know, wants them to know about their God. This is what he writes. Sings. He, that's the Lord, found him, that is his people, in a desert land. Deuteronomy 32.10. And in the howling waste of the wilderness, uh, he encircled him. Uh, he cared for him. He kept him, that is his people, as the apple of his eye. That means the pupil. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. So it's an extended metaphor here. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride high on the high made him ride on the high places of the land. He ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock, oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd. That's supposed to be something you say, ooh, yum. <laughs> 
curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. This is all the feasting that's going on. Provision that's going on under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. And David knows that all this is from his God to whom he appeals. So David prays and he appeals to the wonders of the Lord's steadfast love. Wonderfully show your steadfast love. And he prays that he would be kept as the apple of the Lord's eye. That is the, the object of the Lord's care and concern. Think about that. The apple of your eye, the pupil of your eye, the center of your eye. Uh, that's refer- referring to something uh, that uh, you instinctively move to protect. You know, if I, if I came down towards Logan and, uh, and started to uh, put my finger heading towards his eyeball, he would immediately move or, or flinch or something. Or, uh, I don't think I've ever had to do this, but if you've ever had to put eye drops in your eye, oh, oh, you, know, you don't want to do it. It's going to drop. It's going to drop. And as soon as it drops, you know, you instinctively move to protect. That's the, that's the picture here. Keep me as the apple of your eye. That is, that which you uh, protect. I know you will answer me, says David. So he's, he knows this, that he lives uh, under the shadow of the wings of the Lord. Why is he praying this way? Because he is surrounded. He's surrounded by adversaries. We often find David this way. Hide me in the shadow of your wings, verse 9, from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their uh, hearts to pity. That, that actually, it could be, you translate it, their, uh, their hearts are fat. Or, you know, it's, it's just their hearts are surrounded with fat, is what it actually says. Uh, with their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They've now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us on the ground. He's like a lion eager to tear as a young lion uh, lurking in ambush. And so David prays this way. His feet are on the path. His wings are overhead. He prays that the Lord would hide him under the shadow of his wings. Why? Because he knows that he is surrounded uh, by adversaries that would like to tear him uh, apart. Now in America, our enemy does not put on an obvious face of physical attack as David literally was. Uh, But there are believers in Syria and Nigeria and the Sudan and India uh, they read this psalm and they're thinking physical attack. And they're surrounded. But just because, don't think that, uh, don't think that just because we sitting here tonight at Faith Church and Pole Tavern in a nice warm building, just because, just because we are not under physical attack by people physically surrounding us to do us harm, don't think that the lion who's out to tear us to pieces doesn't have other schemes for you. And for me, he is quite happy to destroy us in a frontal attack as he is by an inside job, right? Wearing away our defenses and getting us to lower the gates and invite him in to take over, right? As C.S. Lewis uh, once said, the devil is no more happy than when he can convince Christians uh, he doesn't exist. It's when he does his best work. 
So don't ever think that we're not surrounded by an enemy who would like to destroy us. That's what the Lord Jesus says, of course, in the New Testament through his apostles. Your enemy, the devil, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion. I think sometimes, you know, in America we think, well, you know, our enemy, the devil, you know, tiptoes around us like a toy poodle. You know, there's nothing. No, the Lord says, your enemy, whether it's in the Sudan or here, he's, he's the same lion. That surrounds us. David prays, Oh Lord, I need you to hide me in the shadow of your wings. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Lord, have, a, have care and concern for me because I need you. And I know uh, that your wings are overhead. Uh, feet on the path. Uh, wings overhead. And a face, uh, a face that delights. Uh, David reminds himself at the end of this psalm, in verses 13 to the end, he reminds himself in prayer of what we tend to forget. Uh, that no one, nobody, not ever, uh, gets away uh, from facing the, the consequences of their sin and wickedness. How so? Well, verse 13, he prays, Arise, O Lord, uh, confront him, subdue him. He's talking here about the wicked and those who are surrounding him to destroy him, to tear him apart. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. So he's asking the Lord to confront him, to subdue him. That is to uh, uh, have the wicked to understand that the wicked has to do with God, uh, that they have to face up to God, that uh, the Lord would confront him, that the Lord would face him uh, and come uh, face to face with them in judgment for their sin. But then the psalm kind of goes, it seems to veer away uh, in verse 14 to veer off from judgment of the wicked to what seems to be not judgment, but a windfall uh, of goodies. From men by your hand, verse 14, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, you fill their womb with treasure, they're satisfied with children, they leave their abundance to their infants. These men of the world, or it could be translated men of this age, as they are called here, this verse says they have their portion in this life. So, well, wait a minute. They have their full here, uh, and now they've got treasure. They've got the treasure of children. They've got abundance. They're leaving an inheritance, uh, leaving an abundance for their infants. They're, they're able to uh, leave their land and their money and their stocks and their bonds to their descendants. And here in verse 14, the Bible says, in this, they are satisfied. They receive their portion in this life. And think, well, wait a minute, that seems like blessing. Or is it? <laughs> or is it? I remember reading a while ago about a fellow named Wellington Burt, uh, B-U-R-T. He died in 1919. He was known as one of the wealthiest people in America. He had amassed, apparently, a fortune uh, as a lumber Baron. He was listed as uh, one of the top eight uh, of America's richest persons. He had political power. Uh, he was a state senator uh, in Michigan. And he was known to be very greedy. A greedy man. Uh, his will that he left at his death uh, was, we're told, a near perfect reflection of his greed. In his will... He stated that no one could receive a dollar of his estate 
until 21 years after the death of the last surviving grandchild. Did you catch that? So he's got all this abundance of wealth, but in his will, he says that nobody in my family, 21 years after the death of my last grandchild, nobody uh, up until that time will ever see a penny. And so 2011, eventually, his money was divided by uh, relatives who, uh, who, he, who, he, who he never knew. And so he, uh, he had all that wealth, he had a portion in his life, but um, uh, had, this, uh, had no family that he loved and no family that, that would have cared for him. There's evidence that more and more in our country, of course, we are pursuing our portion uh, in this world. I read this past week, Americans are sinking deeper into financial struggles with a whopping $1.1 trillion, $1.1 trillion in credit card debt. That means on average, every man, woman, child, infant in arms in America is in debt for over $3,200. Every person you see in America. And uh, car loans uh, are up to $1.61 trillion of money people don't have. And yet, it goes on and on. We're also told that uh, in this past year, uh, the number of homeless people compared to 2015 is now uh, 48% higher than it was Nine years ago, 653,000 people are reported being homeless in uh, our country. But a lot of people are pursuing uh, their portion in this life. And this is what the Bible says, men of the world receive, but don't be deceived to receive your portion in this life in the Bible is no blessing but judgment from the Lord. This is not a windfall of blessing, but judgment from the Lord. Yes, uh, the face of the Lord confronts the men of the world, but gives them what they desire most, that is more of this world, and this is their portion, that is, that is what they are receiving, but it will not ultimately satisfy. Because, of course, they will die. As opposed to the psalmist who already told us where his chosen portion was. Remember? Just one psalm before. Psalm 16.5. The Lord is my chosen portion. That is what satisfies. And my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You see that? The portion of the psalmist is the Lord himself. Oh, he's got a beautiful inheritance. The men of the world who have their portion in this life, they believe they're satisfied, but that will, that will go nowhere because they will die and then meet the judgment of the Lord. So the wicked see the face of judgment. They are confronted face to face by the Lord, uh, but it's judgment. God's people see the face of the Lord, uh, but we see his face and we find not judgment, but delight. Notice verse 15 as the chapter ends. As for me, so in contrast to what has just been described, men of the world finding their portion in this life apart from the Lord. As for me, 
I shall behold your face in righteousness. And when I awake, I shall be satisfied uh, with your likeness or, or seeing you and also being like you. And this is why we read at the beginning of our service those wonderful uh, words uh, from, from John in 1 John 3, uh, which go like this. See what kind of love, remember the wondrous love, David says, show your wondrous love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And so the psalmist is speaking about the the delight, the satisfaction the believer has, not in the things of this world, but in God himself. Uh, Jonathan Edwards had a daughter named uh, Jerusha uh, Edwards, who ended up nursing uh, the missionary David Brainerd uh, at the end uh, of his young uh, life. And when Jerusha Edwards died uh, on her tombstone, uh, was placed uh, this verse, When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your Likeness, And that's because when you look at this verse, yes, when it talks about awaking, it is not simply talking about awaking after a morning's rest, uh, but it's the kind of awaking, uh, awakening in the presence uh, of the Lord. The psalmist has already hinted at this. Psalm 11:7 said, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Uh, Psalm 16, verse 9, therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you shall not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures uh, forevermore. Men of this world, says David, in prayer to the Lord, I know, Lord, you will confront them. They will see your face, but their judgment is that their portion is only in this world. They leave an abundance to their children, but it's an abundance that will, will pass away. As for me, I shall behold your face uh, in righteousness, because no one beholds the face of the Lord uh, unless they are righteous in his presence, made righteous by his grace. Again, this is not David saying, uh, I supply my own righteousness here. Elsewhere in the Psalms we know he's dependent on grace. He knows he's a sinner. Create in me, he says in Psalm 51, a new heart, O oh God. And when he awakes, uh, he will be satisfied, not with the things of this world, right? But with the very likeness of God. There are many people who pursue their portion in this world. That is their highest good. That which will bring them the most joy. I remember uh, when I was younger, uh, on a Super Bowl Sunday, uh, the only thing I would do, I wouldn't go to church when I was 18 or 19. I would, the whole day, 
was about this game. And uh, a year goes by, another year goes by, and uh, of course the game ends. But another Lord's Day has gone by where I wasn't in the worship of God, where I wasn't hearing uh, the means of grace. And you can have Super Bowl parties till the cows come home. And you can have your portion in this life. But it will not lead to blessing. It is only those who find their joy and delight in the Lord Himself, in seeing His glory, His majesty, His mercy, His grace, His love, as David calls out for it here. These are the ones who truly shall be satisfied when they wait in His presence. Um, when the uh, Bible commentator wrote this in closing, it's the nature of sin to draw our affections off from God and fix them upon the creatures, the things of this world. And it's the nature of grace to place them, that is our affections, again, upon God. For they who are after the flesh, the Bible says, mind the things of the flesh. They who are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. The saints, he writes, esteem God as an object worthy of all their affections and earnestly desire the enjoyment of him as the greatest good. They see a transcendent beauty in all his glories and love him for them all. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness, the rivers of your delight. And because they love God, they love his image in whomsoever they behold it. And every means in which he affords them true communion with himself. The saints, other Christians, they esteem as the excellent of the earth and choose them as companions in their way to heaven. That's why you come to worship and why you're not at home. Because you choose these people as your companions on the way to heaven. They, believers, delight in the law of God as the transcript of His glory. You love His Word. And in the Gospel, as the brightest glass by which His beauties are reflected. Rivers of delight in His right hand. In one word, they take delight, satisfaction in the most spiritual sermons, books, conversation, and in all the ordinances and duties of religion. Because these are the means through which he displays his glory and affords them the sweetest sensations of his love. Oh, wondrously show your steadfast love. Feet are on the path, wings overhead. Ah, a face that delights. May that be true of you. May it be true of me as we learn from David uh, in the school of prayer. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word tonight, Lord. It is our joy and delight uh, to be here in the house of the Lord with our companions on the way to heaven. Lord, we pray that uh, with the psalmist, Lord, we would come before you as those who have their feet squarely on the path, not coming to you in pretense, with nothing to hide, coming to you with open hearts, asking you to search us and to know us. That we would come to you trusting in your wondrous love, your steadfast love, knowing that you keep us as the apple of your eye to protect us and guide us. 
care for us, hiding us under the shadow of your wings, filling us with all good things, that we might feast at the river of delights, finding in you the fountain of life. In your light we find light. Oh Lord, how you have shone that light into our lives in the fullness of your revelation as you've sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, who would gather uh, as as a hen would gather her chicks under her wings, that we might find rest tonight under the wings of the Savior and delighting in your face, a face that speaks to us of majesty, of glory, of grace and of mercy, and of love that has come to us in the person of your Son. Help us, Lord, then, to be in prayer, to open our hearts before you, that we might know you better, and that we might love you more. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.